Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Firma. Kurt, it's great to see you as always and excited to be chatting with our guest today. Rich, the books in back of you are more and more, <laughs> and uh, we're excited to talk about it. a new book that's coming out that uh, our author is going to speak to us today about. We're really excited to be joined by a friend, Vasuki Shastri. He's an Associate Asia-Pacific Fellow at Chatham House and also serves as the ESG and Communication Advisor for private equity firm Gateway Partners Group. Yeah, and Kurt, Masuki is also the author of a thought-provoking new book titled, Has Asia Lost It? Something we're really excited to dive into today. So, Masuki, thanks for joining us on Tea Leaves. Great to see you. Vasuki, thank you again so much for being with us. I think Rich and I were frankly intrigued by the title and what we saw about the book. Just for our watchers and listeners, that's going to be coming out in very early uh, 2021. And Vasuki has done kind of a counter-conventional wisdom piece, uh, deeply thoughtful, brought on by his long experience. He's served in Singapore and London, has a lot of knowledge about Asia, but his essential thesis is that we're overestimating Asia and that Asia is facing just enormous challenges ahead. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write the book and a little bit about the overarching thesis to get us started today. Thank you. I mean, the book is a culmination of, you know, 10 years of travel, research, and interaction with a wide range of people in Asia. And I would say the first half of the decade, I very much bought into the proposition of the Asian miracle. I thought Asia's rise uh, would be unstoppable. Uh, The last five years, I've turned a little bit more skeptical for a variety of reasons. And I think uh, we make the mistake, I think, whenever we travel to Asia of of really being in the bubble, or the bubble consists of uh, policymakers, think tanks, the media, the academic community who all buy into this thing that the Asian miracle is a continuing ongoing process. But if you step away, for example, I mean, one way of characterizing this book is uh, the division in here in the US between Wall Street and Main Street. So what I try to do in the book is really to illustrate the differences between Dalal Street in Mumbai and Dharavi or Jalan Sudirman in uh, Jakarta between say Tanjung Priok uh, which has a huge concentration of uh, shanty towns. And I've discovered that the more I got outside of the bubble and the more I spoke to you know, NGOs, ordinary folks, I mean, one illustration I have in the book is this very painful auto rickshaw ride I had in Mumbai about two years ago. And I asked the rhetorical question of this auto rickshaw driver who was a poor migrant uh, from Northern India. And I did tell him that Indian economy was doing extremely well, and therefore he must be benefiting. And he shot back, he shot back and essentially said, we live in the same country and the same city, uh, but you live in heaven and I live in hell. And then went on to explain what that hell looked like. And in many ways that provided the spark for the book. And the more I dug into, right? So I think it's very easy to look at Asia's growth performance and be beguiled into believing uh, that all of this was uh, being equitably distributed, that, you know, uh, social mobility is still happening 
in Asia on the scale that we saw with uh, Japan and the Four Tigers uh, two decades ago. But unfortunately, the data tells you a completely different story. And I, I want to illustrate that the last 25 years have been relatively easy for Asia, tailwinds of globalization, China's rise, and, and very pragmatic leadership. The next 25 years, I think, much more darker outlook, uh, not least because of the pandemic, not least because of US-China tensions, which in a way is going to reconfigure globalization. And, and this is a region that's completely open and dependent on globalization, investment and trade. Uh, but as, as the economy begins to reconfigure, I think social issues are going to once again come to the fore. And it is these social issues that I focus on. So this is not a book about economics. I mean, I do devote one or two chapters on the economic challenges, uh, the perils of economic forecasting, right? So you pick up any multilateral institution or think tank, they're projecting 25 years forward with great certainty that this would be an Asian century. But if you look at the UN Human Development Report and, and you see that developing Asia uh, with one or two exceptions, is all in the 100 to 150 range. Uh, so if Asia truly is going to be a miracle, we need to make sure that these countries, you know, the Bangladesh, India, Myanmar of the world, rise up to the top 50. So in a very broad sense, uh, the book focuses on social fault lines. It looks at climate change. It looks at the deep gender disparities in Asia and then poses the fundamental question to policymakers, are you up to the job in, in delivering equitable growth? So I'll ask one other question and then over to Rich. So again, it is counterintuitive. And I just, you know, if you, if you take a snapshot of today and you look at the performance uh, really across different systems in Asia, South Korea, Taiwan, China, New Zealand and a few others, those are the real only success stories with respect to dealing with the coronavirus. And uh, really it's savaged and ravaged the United States and Western Europe. So most people would say that, you know, really this marks the beginning of a coming Asian primacy in, in politics and in diplomacy and particularly in economics. So how would you respond to that? I, I hear what you're saying about wealth being inadequately distributed, concerns about climate change. Those climate change concerns really are global. They're not just regional. But comparatively, it, it looks, at least from this vantage, that Asia is doing better than other comparable uh, regions or states. Yeah, I think it's useful to differentiate between developed Asia and developing Asia. Right, so developed Asia, if you look at Japan and the Four Tigers, even though Japan has had some, uh, is still struggling to deal with the pandemic, uh, given that they've had 2,000 cases uh, this week. But you've had the Taiwan's, Korea's, Hong Kong, and Singapore, which have managed the pandemic extremely well. When you look at developing Asia, you know, arguably there are problems with China to do, to do with transparency and whether they could have contained the pandemic within the first month. Uh, to prevent this from going global. Vietnam really stands out as the only country with a resilient public health system and, and its ability given the political system it has in really doing aggressive contact tracing and in containing the pandemic. 
But if you look at the two big democracies in Asia, I mean, if you look at India and Indonesia, I mean, India on a scale is off the charts in being able to deal with both the economic impact as well as the public health impact. So there are very sharp variations in the Asia story. There's very hopeful signs in developed Asia, in Vietnam and New Zealand, and certainly Australia. But if you look at, you know, if you look at the Philippines, if you look at, so you get these familiar themes in, in these large messy democracies where public policy really is supposed to work because of public input. And, and you know, Amartya Sen, the famous economist once had said that uh, famines will never take place in democracies, mainly because there will be public outrage and demand for information. Now, if you look at whether pandemics on a major scale can take place in democracies, since hypothesis really has, uh, has, has flipped and you are seeing you know, Indian government with an incredible unique identification system where they're able to transfer benefits to people to the vast majority of the country's population. Uh, but there is this mismatch between online and offline governance that we've seen in India. In Indonesia, it, it appears as though the political leadership has delegated this task down the chain. So you've got local governments in Indonesia, in, in Jakarta, who've handled the pandemic very well. But overall, the federal government under President Jokowi will probably get a C. So you get these very sharp variations. And I think one important theme here is delivery of public benefits or benefits to the general public. I think that transmission mechanism has broken down. It's not because of lack of resources. Many countries are deploying huge amount of fiscal resources to help the poor, but that transmission mechanism has really broken down. And, and you know that points to some dysfunction in politics. It's an amazing and, and timely book, and I'm, I'm really going to look forward to reading it. And I wonder if I could compare and contrast it with another book written about Asia called The Pivot by my co-host here. And, you know, if I think of someone who's kind of driven U.S. attention on Asia over the last 15 or 20 years, it's been Kurt, and he's been forcing U.S. policymakers to think about to really think about our deployment of resources and attention to Asia. And so it's been an effort to talk about the importance of Asia and not just the Middle East, not just Afghanistan, but really the, and, and Iraq, but the Indo-Pacific. I wonder if you both could be right. I wonder if, if Kurt's thesis about the importance of the Indo-Pacific and your thesis about how they may have lost it as well, are both actually right. Because I think the fault lines are clearly there, the challenges are clearly there, but in terms of the importance of the region, for example, to the United States, I'm not sure that's dissipated. How would, how would maybe ask this to both of you, how would you respond to that, uh, Masuki? Yeah, I would say I think the differentiator for me is the final destination and the journey. And I absolutely agree with you know 
folks saying that Asia is extremely well positioned, past performance perhaps will lead to better performance in the future. But the central theme of my book is the journey is getting more difficult. Mm. The journey is getting more difficult because the macroeconomic environment is not that favorable. And, you know, any Asian policymaker will welcome greater U.S. engagement. And I think that really will be pivotal in ensuring that many of the themes that I outline in the book are actually carried out because I think the U.S. has uh, the soft power and the hard power, unchallenged by any other uh, player in the region, in order to persuade and influence Asian governments to do the right thing by their populations. So in, in that sense, it's absolutely vital that an incoming Biden administration continues to focus attention and resources on Asia, not just on the security side, but also perhaps, you know, one of the one of my pet themes would be can we revive the CPTPP and rebrand that into the Indo-Pacific free trade area mm. uh, with a greater number of uh, members of the region? We've seen what happened with RCEP. So I don't disagree with the, with the broad final destination of where Asia is going to land up, but I do have concerns about the journey. Mm. Yeah, and Rich, I would just simply say that I think... Lasuki's point is that about some of the laggards in Asia, I think this may be a tale of two cities in some respects. There are some clear differences between, you know, developed surging Northeast Asia and some of the challenges in Southeast Asia. And I, I accept that. And I think that's an interesting perspective. I do want to, I do want, one of the things that we've seen in some of the pre-publication you talk about, um, you've already mentioned a couple, the challenge of climate change, income inequality. But I wonder if you could go through a few other factors that you think are weakening the fabric of societies in Asia, rural urban divides, women and girls, politics, educational structures, uh, the, the new colliding head on with the conventional. Help us understand some of the other factors that you argue are coming to play in ways that are having a destabilizing impact on Asia more generally. Excellent. I mean, let me start with politics. And, you know, one one struggle that I've had is really uh, saying nice things about Asian democracies, with the possible exception of Indonesia, which really has flourished as a democracy in the last two decades. I mean... Everywhere else, you've got these centralizers and aggregators of power. So, you know, uh, one point that I make in the book is India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, and his counterpart, Mao, or, or prime minister, Joe Lai, were remarkably different in outlook, temperament, and background. You know, Nehru was an Anglophile. Uh, both Mao and uh, Joe came out, you know, were steeped in Japan's rise as an economic superpower in, in the Russian Revolution. But Modi and Xi Jinping are just remarkably alike as, as politicians and as aggregators of power. And, and the, the, the point that is going to lead to social tensions, the kind of social tensions that we're beginning to see in Thailand, in Hong Kong, is this disconnect, is the generation gap between the ruler and the ruled. So I did some very basic research uh, to figure out the birth dates, the birth years, of all the leaders in Asia today. And, and maybe 1960 for me was the cutoff point. And you'll only find Jokowi, Kim Jong-un, 
and the Prime Minister of Mongolia uh, as three leaders in the Asian region, not the Pacific, who were born after 1960. Everyone else is from the radio and telegraph era, right? So, I mean, Mr. Modi or, uh, may have millions of followers on Twitter, but surely he does not understand the aspirations of half of his country's population who are under the age of 35. And connected with this is this massification of higher education, right? So I think governments all, all across Asia have devoted a huge amount of time and effort to make sure that everyone who's able to gets a college degree. And we've seen, and I, I you know, there's, there's interesting research here in the US from an academic who predicted in 2010 that he was, he was uh, foreseeing a lot of uh, social turmoil in the US and the UK because of the number of graduates who were being churned out, who were not being able to find adequate jobs. And, you know, one proximate reason, I mean, Hong Kong, the protests, uh, surely the anger is directed at the Chinese authorities. But if you dig a little deeper, if you look at housing shortages, the fact that people have to save much longer to buy a tiny apartment in Hong Kong. So those social tensions meet with these political fault lines and and delivers unexpected uh, turmoil. Then you've got to look at the number of billionaires in Asia, 778 according to the latest Forbes list. So you strip away Japan and the Asian tigers, you still come up with a significantly larger number. Now I'm all for free enterprise entrepreneurship and for billionaires to flourish. But the fact that you've got such a large number of billionaires in developing Asia, a region with fundamentally rising inequality, with social fault lines that are really increasing in pace and intensity. So there's something wrong with this picture. And you do a little bit more research, you find that Asia is really getting chabolized. Everyone is literally following the Korean model. And the Korean model had a very good side to it because it delivered Korea as a developed country. But at the same time, if the state is colluding with the large private sector, it's not always obvious that public interests are being served or public interests indeed are being aligned. And this comes through very clearly in uh, the Hong Kong property market the fact that land sales are a lever to for, for the government to decide how much land they want to release, and that exacerbates inequality. This creates a lot of uh, tension in a country like India, where you, you've got a handful of billionaires who are really winning all the major infrastructure contracts uh, with very little transparency and public discussion. So I think there's we, what we need to do is, I'm, I'm not arguing by any means for fewer billionaires or for the socialization of Asia. All I'm saying is you need greater transparency. You need a larger pool of entrepreneurs. So you, while, while these billionaires are flourishing, uh, we're beginning to see that small business, it's more difficult. The price of entry for new entrepreneurs is becoming much, much more difficult. Uh, my final point would really be on the urban-rural divide. So you've got a large number of migrants who are moving to the cities and and urbanization. It's heretical to say there's something wrong with urbanization in developing Asia, mainly because of the sprawling shanty towns 
all over the region, people living in, in, in very difficult conditions. And, and maybe Asia, developing Asia needs to rethink urbanization to move towards smaller urban agglomerations so that you're able to really provide jobs in smaller towns and economic opportunity. And I think the social mobility data across the board from the World Bank and other sources, I think uh, point toward stalling. Uh, so what we saw in Singapore and Hong Kong three decades ago is not quite translating uh, the same yeah. in developing Asia. So you've got a large number of aspirational lower middle class uh, and, and the middle class numbers are actually quite small. So, so many of the challenges that you're outlining, you know, I wonder if, if they could apply to the United States as well. Just, just thinking about our recent election and all the issues that, not all, but many of the issues that you're outlining on income inequality and urbanization, the divide with rural between the educated and college educated and those who didn't go to college. I mean, so many familiar themes. You also, I, I'm fascinated by the titles of some of your chapters, and you've gone through a couple of them, but you, the one that's called To Be a Teenage Girl in Rising Asia, I think you, you, and what's been described about it, you really lay out a very tough situation. I wonder if you can just say a little bit about some of the gender disparities as well. Yeah, I had the opportunity in the last five years to spend a lot of time with charities who are working with disadvantaged girls, teenage girls. And, and it's really shocking. And this is not just an India problem or a China problem. This is pretty much across the board. So you've got these really entrenched social strictures against, uh, against women, and that really impacts teenage girls. So you've seen, for example, that many more teenage girls are getting educated, at least through high school in, in developing Asia. But their economic opportunity simply vanishes after that, because many of them drop out, they want to help families. I mean, in India, you've got something called the sun meta preference, uh, the fact that families continue to have children, so they can have four girls, and then they have a son, they stop having children. And the son gets all the favorable treatment, the girls are deprived of uh, good education and health. And, you know, in the narrative, in the international, in the global narrative, I think you know, bridging uh, gender divides, I think is a huge global priority, but I think not enough attention is really being paid to the plight of disadvantaged teenage girls. And these are several hundred million across the region. And they face not only strictures, they also face social sanctions. They face abuse of the most horrific kind, right? So if you still look at human trafficking across Asia, uh, with Bangkok as the epicenter. From in that context, I think the State Department does a terrific job in the human trafficking report every year because I think that is one way of really changing behaviors of policymakers. And I'm beginning to see that in Thailand, uh, for example, uh, the fact that the State Department report uh, listed Thailand as an area of concern, you're beginning to see some action. So, and you know, in an earlier generation, you know, if you look at China in the 1950s under Mao, if you look at Afghanistan, it's, Afghanistan is not seen as a country that we would really uh, label as a country that was, which was equal. But you know, in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, Afghanistan was incredibly equal with lots of women having opportunities in, in uh, public service and in the private sector. And my big worry is 
that you may have a shining Asia. You may continue to see high rates of economic growth. Teenage girls don't have a political voice. I mean, not all of them are Malala or Greta Thunberg. I, I hope many of them really stand up for their rights. Uh, but if, if Asia is going to leave behind teenage girls, uh, that's not only a huge missed opportunity, that's also incredibly unfair. And, and public policy makers really should be looking at this as an urgent challenge. Uh, because in, in India and in China, the, the, if you look at the population imbalance between girls and boys, uh, that already is off the charts. And, and this will create social tensions in the future. Um, can I just argue perhaps the counter case for one minute? Not not specifically on gender, but I, I agree with all of the challenges that you've outlined. But I also we we do think to the promise of and the potential of Asia. And I let's just use India as an example, or even Bangladesh. But I I think about the India of 2030, for example, and I think of not only the world's most populous country, but third largest economy, third largest military, world's largest democracy. By that point, the world's largest middle class. By that point, the world's largest number of college graduates. By that point, the world's largest number of internet users the greatest urbanization over the next eight to 10 years will take place in India, building a hundred new airports today, some two to $3 trillion required in infrastructure development. So I've had that experience in Mumbai that you described where you talk to the people who have been left behind. But I also have the experience where you talk to people around the country who feel kind of this pace and excitement and this kind of movement. Now there's a lot of obstacles as you as you lay out, but is there not a counter case about just, you know, the sheer kind of economic progress that's going to be made over the next decade? Uh, and not just in India, but again, in Bangladesh where economic uh, development indicators are even better uh, than, in, than in India, which really surprises people. Absolutely. You know, India's problems, economic problems are self-inflicted at the moment. I know the pandemic is the outlier that, you know, completely shocked uh, the economy. So, you know, much of the economic decline we're going to see in India this year and next can partially be attributed to the pandemic. But, you know, Prime Minister Modi has been in power for the last six years and we've seen, you know, huge opportunity for reforms. And I think, you know, I agree with you, Rich, that India can bounce back, can grow at 8% if these policy opticals, ob obstacles are resolved. But we've seen no attention being paid to, to listening to the concerns of business. Uh, I think demonetization was a huge distraction, which, you know, net-net uh, really deducted from economic growth and contributed to it. So I think if India brings uh, serious policy attention, if India really invests a little bit more in its democracy, we've seen recently that uh, democracy is under some kind of challenge in India. There's you know, 
cultural chauvinism happening on a scale that certainly, um, you know, as an Indian, I've never seen ever in my life before. Uh, but India has got tremendous potential to grow. And, you know, it may well be in 2030, uh, the economy that we all want to be a part of. But I think there's serious obstacles in terms of being able to get economic growth uh, back again and in really using and this unique identification system, Aadhaar, is an incredible tool for driving financial inclusion. And India should be marshalling its financial sector really to build those saving options and income options for the urban poor. Look, it's a it's a powerful. I'm I'm still on the fence whether it's a convincing argument. It's a powerful argument, though. So it, as you look ahead. And with this critique, who do you think leads the global community? Does the United States still play that role? Are we heading profoundly into a period of multilateralism in which really no country leads the globe and, you know, that maybe on certain issues, but the community is fundamentally leaderless? Or do you see China in this larger context, even with its challenges, still dominant in many respects? How do you see it overall, systemically? Yes, so, you know, the last chapter of my book is titled An Asian Renaissance, so I don't want to give away too much, uh, but, I, but you know, I'm much more hopeful about the U.S. role in Asia, and I think uh, it'll be absolutely central and vital to have the U.S. re-engage. Obviously, regional security is going to be, is going to be fundamental to how the U.S. engages. But I think there's great expectation in the region of seeing the U.S. coming back on on issues like democracy, on issues like human rights, in being able to directly engage with the broader section of Asia's population. So not just the elite, not just the business community. You've got a huge demographic bulge in Asia. So here's an opportunity, I think, to engage with youth across the region. And I think the U.S. role is going to be critical. For, for, for an Asian renaissance in the next 10, 10 to 20 years. I think this will collide in some way or the other uh, with, uh, with China. And, uh, and I think the market, and I think you really look at this as, is there a bigger market for US ideals and ideology in Asia compared with the China model? And I think without hesitation, I can say there's a bigger market uh, for for the US brand, mainly because I think Asian policymakers recognize that having the US on your back and the US has been, has had Asia's back for the last five decades. And the Asian miracle would not have been possible without the security insurance and, and the globalization and trade links which the US provided. So China will be an important party. It'll be, it'll play a growing role. But I think this will be a classic clash of uh, ideologies and the optimist in me thinks that the U.S. brand is going to prevail. I I do want to just make one other comment, then I'll go to Rich, and we're coming to an end here. I I like this idea that you talked about, about the the similarities, uh, even though very different systems between Xi Jinping and the uh, prime minister. Modi of India. I'm struck by a, another pairing. So if you look at someone like Kishore Mambani and and yourself, you someone would be would suggest that you know both 
techno global elites, you know, home based and sometimes in Singapore, but each coming to very different conclusions. Much of his work recently is about the dominance of Asia and about the superiority of what Asia has accomplished and get ready for Asia uh, being in the lead, while yours underscores the challenges that Asia as a whole is facing. What, what accounts for that difference in view from your perspective? I mean, I'm looking forward to engaging with Kishore on, on, on the book and, and really eager to hear his perspective. I mean, my perspective really comes down to if, if you engage and if you, look, if you dive deep into the data, if you engage enough with the widest circle of people in Asia, you come to a much more skeptical conclusion. And again, you know, I think Kishore's point, I don't want to mischaracterize his, his view on the region. I think Kishore's point would be the final destination is, you know, Asia rising. I don't necessarily disagree with that proposition. Where, where I have a problem with is the journey, as I outlined earlier. And I think the journey is going to be much more bumpy, much more turbulent. And it would take an, literally a new generation of pragmatic Asian policymakers who can really help shape this new Asia. It's not going to be, you know, our father's Asia. It's going to be very different, particularly shaped by young people. And uh, we really need to worry about the journey and, and keep the destination in mind would be my final challenge to Kishore. Yeah, uh, Vasuki, maybe I could just ask a final question. And, you know, as we were in this challenging transition period here between the Trump administration and incoming Biden team, and, you know, there is this kind of challenge of that we're facing on anti-globalization, focus on uh, what's happening in the country first. And, you know, what's what's your message, not only to the Biden team, but really to people who are listening and, and kind of who might, you know, not know of the book, what would you say to them in, in America about why they should care about this story, about what's happening in Asia? And what, why does it matter? And, you know, that it, that it does have consequence what the U.S. does uh, in the world. What, what's, what would you say? I mean, I think the U.S. is the essential power which can really help drive this new globalization. And I think this new globalization is not going to be built on high rates of economic growth, on really looking at uh, how the rich are prospering and the rest of the population is doing okay. So I think one theme that really connects the U.S. with the rest of the world is on social dislocation. I think both, I mean, both the U.S. as well as vast parts of Asia are facing social dislocation on, on a massive scale. People are really anxious about their future. They're anxious about their jobs. You know? So we probably need to worry less about globalization and probably focus a little bit more attention on the impact of technology on jobs. And I think the U.S. can really help shape this global debate. So this is not an issue where the U.S. Uh, goes into a shell and really worries about. And you know, I think there's probably a strong argument to be to be made that domestic priorities should be a major focus of an incoming Biden administration. But you know, we're all interconnected, and and there's really no way anyone can make the argument that if you if you help reducing social dislocation in the U.S., those lessons will be very valuable for Asia because we, I think social policies 
are going to become more important than economic policies. You know, macroeconomics has really not changed in the last hundred years, and and there's nothing much. And and I think most most governments in Asia really know how to manage the economies well. Where they're going to struggle, really, is dealing with social unrest. How how am I going to find the money to to deal with so, uh, climate mitigation? And the U.S. I think really has a lot of knowledge. It has the influence and the power uh, to bring that to the table. And I hope it does that not just to Asia but uh, but to Europe. So this alliance of democracies is, I, I think, a very very compelling proposition. Great, thank you so much. It's it's. Uh... It's been amazing, and we we do look forward to the book. Maybe you could just tell people when it's when it's coming out again, as a reminder, and how they can get it. Excellent! It's already on pre-order on Amazon, and uh, my publisher tells me the book will be out first in Asia in January 2021, and soon after in the U.S. and Europe. This has just been fascinating today. We're really grateful that you've joined us. We wish you well. We'll we'll promote the book, and we really thank you for joining us today, Basuki. We really appreciate you spending this time with us. I also want to thank our, our listeners and our viewers, and please be sure to find and rate us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of this conversation with Basuki online on the Asia Group's website. Uh, again, Basuki, thanks again, and stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure.